This is the Van City Church Podcast. Nearly three years into the Van City story, we are constantly learning what it means to be planted, not only as a church, but as individual brothers and sisters, and as a family. Um, A lot of you guys don't know this, uh, but several years ago now, I guess it would be like four or five years ago now, um, I actually began to have a conversation with some other folks about the possibility of planting a church in Vancouver. Uh, Spoiler alert, it happened, you're all here. Um, But it began as a conversation, and at that time, uh, I was working as a a pastor at a church called Bridgetown in Portland, and I started to talk to the leadership there and say, like, oh, what it would look like to plant a church in Vancouver, and they were inviting me into that uh, possibility. Um, One of the first things that someone told me at that time was, well, if you're even going to consider it as a possibility, then you need to sit down and have lunch with our friend Chris Feenan. Now, Chris Feenan had been a, a long-term friend to the Bridgetown story, and he's also been a long-term friend to the Van City story. He is a gentleman from South Africa who's a pastor and church planter and now acts as, while he's simultaneously leading a church in California, as a, a mentor and a father figure to other church planters like myself and leaders and pastors, um, both local and abroad. And for the last three years of Van City, and really before that, he's been someone who I've been reaching out to, who's been connecting with myself and our leadership to speak encouragement and wisdom and big picture kind of stuff over the Van City story. So it is a unique treat and a privilege to get to actually introduce him to come and teach at Van City tonight. So come on up. This is Chris Venom. Treat him well. Hi. This is so much fun. Meryl and I, my wonderful wife of almost 38 years, next month will be 38 years. Yep, I married her when she was two. It's Africa, you know, it's all the arranged marriage things. And, uh, and I actually had the privilege of leading Meryl to faith when she was 15 and um, married her just before I went off to the army. It was what we had to do back in the day. And uh, it's just fabulous for the two of us to be uh, well done. Well done for digging through the hard first three years. Um, church planting is in the blood. Uh, planted our first church, Meryl and I did, in 1984 when she was still at college. I was a high school teacher. Um, led that community in South Africa for many years. Handed that over. From that community, we planted many churches. We were involved in church planting in around 60 countries around the world. Then we came to America by default. It was not our plan or our intention. I may talk about that in a bit. And then uh, we led a replant of a really hurting, limping community for about 14 years. And then the last decade have been serving, loving, and caring churches as small as 20 to as large as probably Bridgetown. Uh, Rock Harbor was about 5,000. So we've had this incredible privilege of all being what God is doing and reimagining church. What does church need to look like going forward? And uh, I turned 60 in July. And uh, a year ago, maybe 15, 16 months ago, God began to knock on my heart again and saying, I I want you to establish a new community. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, church planting is for young people. It's like you. You, you church plant. I'm supposed to be the old wise wizard who, who offers great counsel, who speaks slowly, is marginally stooped, and uh, is highly selective about what he eats. You know, that's kind of what is supposed to happen. And uh, the Lord began to nudge me as he, as he does. And I said, all right, Lord, as long as we don't have to rent a school hall and get a band. And we started meeting Sunday nights over a meal. Five of us, six of us, seven of us. And uh, we began to say, okay, if it meant that every time we gather, we eat together, I'm interested. See, so much of the Scripture is around food, isn't it? The Old Covenant, the feasts, each one of them was a moment of high celebration, delicious food, extravagant food. When you look at Solomon becoming king, uh, David becoming, I mean, it was just extravagance and lavishness and abundance. And... um, I, I, between you and me, I, I kind of thought, pity the people in the middle who, who have the main dishes. I thought, can I bring chips and salsa? Can I be the, the A to G? Can, can my name, except we W, so we would have had to bring dessert. 
They say, everyone brings. See, that's how we started eating together. Just a small little group that's growing. They're having Greek food right now. Because what we do is every time we eat, we set a theme. We've just done the world. We started in Japan. We, moved, we went through to China, to India, to Australia, to the Middle East. Uh, we're in Greece this morning, this evening. Uh, we did French. We've done Italian. We're just kind of going around the globe. And here's the whisper. One, because that's what the early church did. And we poorly replaced it with a nip and a sip. A little cracker, a little juice. Extravagant love of Jesus. Just don't get your throat all tied up with the cracker. It was this extravagant meal, this, this meal of great celebration, and they ate together lavishly. See, because I think what we learned, because our community is 22. You know, that's the average age. I'm 60, Meryl's 56, don't tell I told you. And then the next couple are in their 40s, and then everyone almost is under 30. I don't know why. They just found a, a grandpa and grandma and said, we'll hang with you. But, but, but it's because we wanted to teach generosity through food. Because students say to me, oh, I'm sorry, we can't bring food as they have their craft beer or craft coffee. You know, I'm really poor. And then they go for the summer to Italy. I thought, you're a liar. You're a complete and utter liar. No, Chris, I can't bring food. I am too poor. So which part of going to Italy makes you poor? Because I'm not getting that right now. The joy and the wonder of eating together, representing the table of the Lord as accounted for in Scripture. Secondly, teaching generosity around food. And honestly, tonight's table will be spectacular. I mean, people are cooking for hours. They even take photographs of the table because it's got to be, it's got to be beautiful and colorful, rich in fragrance, uh, uh, extraordinary in colors and textures and spices. Why? Because we're celebrating God's goodness. I don't bring the buns we didn't eat last night or last night's pizza. We bring food we've intentionally brought the love of Christ with. But the third thing, and you and I know this, the average American Christian exists to consume Christian products. Come, let me listen to the singing. I am a consumer, that's what I do. Let me listen to the speaking. I am a consumer, that's what I do do. But the Bible doesn't allow consumer as one of the gifts. It's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not one of the charismata of the Spirit. And so one of the things we trick people into is learning how to be a contributor to community through food. Now I'm teeing you up, Josh, no extra charge for an extraordinary evening of eating. Just an amazing time where everyone here will say, this is our opportunity to spread the love. This is our opportunity to show our... You know what's funny? So we do, every time we gather, we eat. So we have a midweek called uh, midweek because we haven't got a better name for it. And so, so we eat. Now, I have got about five dishes I cook. And, and stir fry is one of them because I love just putting stuff in. And if it doesn't, then there's more honey or more spice or something. And so we said in our little midweek, about 15 to 20, depending, we're going to have soup together, which is crazy when you live in Southern California, but we did it. So I said, I'll do the first one. I've never done a soup in my life before. Thank the Lord for Trader Joe's. Because you just go online, tortilla soup, Trader Joe's, they show you the picture of every tin you've got to buy. I'm walking up and down the aisle saying, I'll have that tin throwing it all together, and the wonder and the joy of eating together. Now, bear that in mind. Let's read a passage of Scripture, and then we will see where we go tonight. Fabulous to be here. Well done, as I said. I'm so incredibly proud of the most Sundays. Um, I'm in a church plant somewhere, and uh, you have done incredibly well. You must understand that. It's, it's very difficult coming out of a mega church because you measure yourself against large numbers, and then you feel like a quasi-success slash failure because you are not large numbers. The Bible never speaks about successful church plants, only healthy ones. Imagine if you looked at this and say, Chris, you've got a very successful body. You wouldn't say that, even if I cross-fitted, would you? 
you, you wouldn't. You would say something like, you, you've got a healthy body. Does Meryl, do, do you eat well? Say, yeah, salads and, and a bit of protein. I'm, I haven't kind of got the vegan, vegetarian thing going. So, but, but you see, a healthy body makes sense. A successful body, not so much. All right. Isaiah, please. Isaiah, right in the middle of the Scriptures about, and uh, we'll pick up in verse 1. Arise, shine, Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, lift up, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Forgive me, I'm just opening my computer here. Lift up your eyes, look about you, all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant, your heart will throb and swell with pride. Verse 12, 13. For the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, the cypress together will beautify or adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. Help us now, Lord. Let this word in such a remarkable room with such extraordinary people, each one of us, you know, intimately, wonderfully, and personally. There's no surprise package in the room. There's no one who's a distant cousin that we meet at a wedding. You only know sons and daughters. That's what you know. And I ask that in this moment there would be a sweet melody of many sounds and that each one of our ears will be attuned to that part of the message we need to hear. We have to hear as you speak to us through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I was traumatized turning 60. Um, no birthday has ever been traumatic for me, but for some reason turning 60 was a super bummer. I don't know why. I, I try to make sense of it. I try to think through it logically, reasonably. Nothing made sense. And so I said, all right, Lord, this is really not good. I've walked with you for 42 years. This is really not good. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't downcast. I was just, I just wasn't cool. I just wasn't stoked. So I said, okay, there must be an answer. And the answer is I'm going to read every 60th chapter in the Bible. I'm going to read every 60th verse in the Bible. Even if I have to go to the maps and the part at the back that points me, I'm going to read whatever I can. And I started with Isaiah 60. And instantly, what caught my attention in the front end was the prophet saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the power of the dark night, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. You know, folks... We fear the dark night of the soul, don't we? St. John of the Cross, oh gosh, in the 16th century, I think it was, uh, wrote this great Spanish poet, mystic, wrote about the dark night of the soul. And uh, I just thought tonight, in, in our little story, as I unpackage a few ideas for you, which hopefully will be helpful, I cannot but grab you for just a moment and say that every one of us will journey through some pretty brutal dark times. I loved Psalm 23, but I didn't love the part which says, um, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And as I read this, I realized there was this passage for me, this the sense of the dark night that God was lifting me out of. Now, maybe some of you, and this isn't my big message, but I just want to front end, back end, and then get to some things that I think will help. But I want to appeal, even momentarily, with the Father's heart. If you are in that dark space right now, number one, please know God notices. It may not be sin. It may not be rebellion. It may just be a moment, a week, a month, a chapter in which God takes you through the valley of the shadow of death that is riddled with darkness and confusion and isolation and alienation, and it just does not seem to make sense. Secondly, we all will. 
It's not the uber kind of the, the super Christian person who doesn't go through that. The guarantee of both the Scriptures and the great old mystics say that every one of us will go through times. Why? Because in God's kindness, there are some things that He can only whisper to you when it's dark. I hate snakes. I can't even pretend to be green about them. I don't know why. I have no particular logical reason. But I oftentimes wake up early, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I go downstairs, and I'll have a devotion, or I'll lie on the couch and read. And recently, I told Mary it was so funny. I'm lying on the couch, and my imagination is of a snake coming and looking at me as I lay on the couch. And you know when that image is there, you can't sh shrink it, you can't shred it. I'm, I'm nodding my head from, eventually I get up with a jolly little flashlight and I go through our little family room, our little TV room, looking under the couch, under the, I know there's no dang snake there. It's humanly impossible in Costa Mesa for there to be a snake that's going to come and look at me. See, there are those moments, that's a more humorous rendition, but there are moments, dear friends, and I want to say to you, number one, God is there with you. He leads me. Two, every person will go through it. Number three, He wants to teach us things that only in the darkness we can hear. Don't run away. Don't run away from God or from community. That's not the answer. Well, I'm tired of this. I'm sick of this. It's just Christianity is not true, and my faith is shredded, and, and I'm riddled with doubt. Yes, doubt is the gateway to knowledge. Very little that we truly believe do we believe through any other gateway than the gateway of doubt. And I want to say to those of you who are there, understand this, that it is vital for your soul to suffer the silence of darkness. That's where we meet Him. That's when we know His tenderness and His kindness and His affection. When everything is going well and we're busy running, shredding, moving, going, growing, there isn't time for the silent whispers to be heard because our lives are too loud. I know. I was there. The back end of it, the prophet says that we're a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. And then he adds, in his time, he does things swiftly. You know, nothing about Maryland, my life has happened how we planned it. I mean, not one thing. We met when Meryl was 15, I was 18. We decided to get married. I had two-year military obligation. What we said what we'd do is we'd get, we'd get, um, get engaged one year in. I had to go and do a year's officer's course, infantry officer. And then we'd get married at the end of it. Then we decided, no, no, that's way too long. We'll get engaged before we go to the military. And then we'll get married midway through. No, 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 that's way, way, way too crazy. What we will do is just get engaged now. And then we were sitting around her, at her parents' pool one day. We were writing exams. Meryl, end of her first year, freshman year, I was wrapping up my degree. And we just said, let's get married. Let's just get married. So we went up and we said to her folks, Ken Laws, we want to get married. Oh, great. I mean, I'd already asked. I'd done all the protocol. Oh, and when will it be? So I said, November. They said, oh, got a whole year to prep. No, no, six weeks. <laughs> six weeks. You see, in God's time, dear friends, He does things swiftly. And here is my fatherly appeal to you. Don't get impatient with God's timing. Impatient. Impatience is so often the breeding ground for silliness, where we just rush ahead and do stuff because we are not patient enough. You know that person you want to marry? You say, really? I'm 35. I'm done. Wait. 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 He can be trusted. One of the joys of being older is just the freedom that we have to know. 42 years. I can stand up here and just tell you story after story, and Josh said I should. 
but, but, but I want you to understand as one, every gray hair has a story to tell. Every receding hairline is a moment of panic, fear, and anxiety. Every part is so much part of our narrative. But here it is, dear friends, it is in the patience that our spiritual muscles grow. It's in the waiting that we do the necessary push-ups that posture and present us to that great moment. You know, our little church plant in South Africa, gosh, 35 years ago or whatever it was. So we were small. There were 40 of us, a bunch of mates. I was 24, Meryl was 21. We had the time of our lives. Durban is the surfing capital of South Africa. So we had surfers. We had clothing designers, worked for all the surfing brands. We had artists, sculptors, painters. We had this. And then suddenly it dawned on me we weren't growing. So I panicked. So I said, okay, Lord, whatever happens, you've got to grow. And, of course, you make it sound really spiritual so that God is super impressed by just how spiritual you are. It was all about ego. It was all about the awkwardness that going to a pastor's event and saying, we've got like 60 people in our church. That's really uncool when everyone else got hundreds of people. And so I said, Lord, I will do whatever is needed. I would wear a suit if I need to. Now, you must understand where board shorts and T-shirts and, and sandals are the or kind of lingo franco. It's, it's how we dressed. You must understand, for me to be prepared to wear a suit was the ultimate because I was impatient with the rhythms of God. I, it, it took too long. It, it was too awkward. It was too, 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 too protracted for me. But fast forward one day, an American came to preach. I don't let people in the pulpit I don't know personally. This day I did for reasons I don't know. Big, booming Texas, Texan. And I thought, oh, my Lord, here we go. Get all the South kind of uh, Christian subculture. And I'm, I have my people looking at me and saying, are you nuts, dude? Why do you have this guy? What do you think? Having this big, booming Texan, Southern Bible thing going. He, in the middle of his message, dear friends, he stops. And he says, you've wondered why you haven't grown. Yep. He says, you've been growing in ones and twos and tens. And we're saying, yep. He says, but from now onwards, you will grow in fifties and hundreds. And we said, yep, 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 yep. This is what we wanted to hear. You see, patience, faith-filled patience. The next, I can't remember what we called it, um, newbies, people who came to the church, we had 52. For something like a decade, we never had less than 50 and sometimes 120, 150 people per quarter joining our community. See, because in his time, he does things swiftly. It is we who get impatient and complicate our world with our impatience, and we default to our minds trying to reason a solution when actually it's quietly posturing ourselves in the everlasting arms. I love being a dad, second only to being a husband. I've got three kids. My eldest daughter's 32, a church planter in Perth, of course, with our four grandkids. Bad news. The second is in Costa Mesa. She's married to a guy from London, a singer, songwriter, and... Uh, um, Dana has been serving in a church plant for seven years, and we have a, seven year, a 19-year-old son at Point Loma in San Diego, a surfer. Now, why am I telling you all that, my love? There was a reason for that. I love being a dad, but there was another little point to that great and wonderful story. I'll remember in just a moment. <laughs> if I talk long enough, normally the idea comes back. But, but, but the front end, dear friends, of this text is this notion God brings us out of that dark place. The dark places are essential, don't run. The back end of it is in His time, He does things swiftly, suddenly. I mean, I could tell you story after story from Hong Kong. And when I was on my knees in, tai Chung, in Taiwan, crying out to God, and God said to me, you're asking me the wrong question. For years, I'd felt God say, you're moving abroad. You're going to spend the rest of your days abroad. And I'm saying, Lord, what are you talking about? You will leave South Africa and you will never return. You will never reside there again. And I'm on my knees in Taichung, Taiwan, saying, God, where will you send me? Where will you send me? Where will you send me? And he, and he kept quiet. 
week after week, month after month, year after year, and in that dingy little hotel room, he said, you're asking me the wrong question. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's not where will you send me, it's to whom. His silence was he had no answer to the first question, only to the second. In his time, he does things swiftly. How are you doing, people? You okay? Okay. So, in this passage, and this is where I want to place some emphasis. Oh, there is a, there is a watch up there. There is this curious little verse. It says, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress. And if you cross-reference that to Isaiah 41, it reads as follows. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland and fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know, they may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created this. Now, what am I trying to say here? You know why I love churches? You know why I love church plants? With the raw, crusty, unrefined nature of what we do in the trenches in these early days. It's because God creates jungles in the desert. Hasn't it amazed you? When a little church plant happens, who stumbles into the story? And this picture, the clever people, the botanists tell us, this should not happen. Now, I'm, I, I'm, I have no knowledge of these things, so I have to rely on those cleverer than me. But what happens is these trees and shrubs, all the way down, all the way up to the tallest ones, do not naturally grow together. And, and, and what God is telling us here in both occasions, and this is where church planting to me is so fabulously amazing, is that God brings to pe together people of great diversity. And I want to land with three very simple exhortations because I want you to understand how absolutely vital you are to the spiritual landscape of Vancouver and the surrounding area. All too often when a church is planted and we count how many people, oh, there's only 47 this week. <gasps> Last week there were 62. Where are the 15? Oh, well, so-and-so's away and their mother and there's a business trip and then our heart flutters and we wonder why we failed the three who came once and never came back back, and our hearts get so complicated by the story without understanding the bigger narrative is that God looked at Vancouver and saw the spiritual wasteland that it is. Now, I'm no authority on it, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, but I sneakingly suspect I'm not. And over the spiritual landscape of desolation, very little water, very little uh, rivers of living water encountering springs from, from the very core of, of the earth, bursting its banks into lively, throbbing, thriving communities. God looks around and He finds Josh and Abby. And He finds in them a tender heart, a gentle but courageous spirit to leave the safe place of Bridgetown, Probably one of the coolest, hypersexiest churches in America right now. And, and they, they prepare to leave the sanctum that that community offers and to stumble their way with a few friends, wondering if vulnerability and uncertainty, could we make it here? Choosing not to be just down the road from Bridgetown where the shadow of Bridgetown gives them protection, but to cross the river into a spiritual wasteland and to say, will there be people who will join us and together we begin to see the presence of God percolate in a wonderful way where lives are changed. And the Father looked and the Father was pleased. God is looking, dear friends. Do you know that in this country, there are 3,000 churches that close a year and only 2,700 churches that are planted a year. We are losing the battle in America. There are more churches closing than churches opening. And we're not even talking about the mediocre churches, those who keep their doors open. We're simply talking about those who close. And so God looks a cross, and he says, where are men and women who will be courageous enough to trust me enough to get out of the boat of their own safety and embark on an adventure? 
Because, firstly, where God is, there is life. It could be a little oasis. I've just been in Dubai. been working there with the church for many years. And it was a little oasis. A little oasis. And the father, the Sheikh Mohammed, saw that they did not have as much oil as the other Emiratis have. And so he decided to carve and create a city, an international city like Singapore. And around this measly little oasis, built one of the most visually extravagant cities, not my cup of tea, but an incredibly aesthetic, with the Burj Khalifa standing, the tallest building in the world, most times above the clouds, peeping over the rest of the city. What one man did when he saw an oasis of life, he crafted a city to shape cities. What a visual representation of what God wants to do with a small group of people who say, yes, we will do it. Blessed is the one, Psalm 1 says, who does not walk in step with the wicked. He's not preoccupied with the things of the world. What is your series at the moment? The world, the flesh, and the devil or something. Who, who doesn't walk in step with that? Those things are meaningless. Nor stand in the way of sinners. Oh dear, I jumped right to the end. This is small. <laughs> Josh, do you use a small Bible and a small thing because this is small. But, but, but listen, listen to the beauty, that that person is like the tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, but whatever they do, they prosper. Where God is, there is life. There are many things I love about Meryl, but I think my favorite thing is walking in on her in the bedroom when she's worshiping. It's a very sacred space normally on her knees or on her face, normally worship playing of some genre or style, and I invariably walk in, hey, babe, and you just, because where God is, there is life. And what, what, what communities like you begin to offer is the percolated presence of the life eternal, God moving into a city. You may feel it is little, when I was in the army, we fought up, and I'm excuse the military analogy, I think some of you probably don't dig it, but it is just what it is. We ran out of water because we fought in the desert, and I was sent out with a group of men to go and find water. The Africans don't talk in terms of watches because they don't have them. They talk in the position of the sun. So I met a local man out in the middle of the desert and through an interpreter tried to say, where is there water? And he, he, he motioned back, the sun is there. When the sun is there, we will find it. I said, we need water. Will you take us there? Eventually, we found a hole. Water, and in the middle was a fence. This side, the animals drank. Just sticks it in the ground. Don't think fancy. The animals drank, trod and this side men drank. Normally, pfft, no way we would have drunk that water. Without trying to be funny or awkward, just think for yourself what that water was like. There the cows are standing drinking. Here humans are drinking. It's amazing how tasty water is when you have none. See, Van City doesn't need Bridgetown. Vancouver, rather. Vancouver needs Van City, an oasis of God life. You may feel it's small, but it's never inconsequential because when people are thirsty, they will find the water to drink. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you are the dispensers of that water. Think, Josh, I have nothing to give. Do you know, you know how my life screwed up? Do you know how I doubt every day? You know what? You have water. Because Jesus dwells in you. The rivers of living water dwells in you. And you may feel your water's a little murky because you've trodden it and you've messed it and you thought of things, said things, done things that's made the waters murky. Ladies and gentlemen, Vancouver needs people where the life of God flows. In the New Testament, there's a great passage of Scripture, um, Acts 2, 36 to 47. I won't go there sufficient to say this. One of my favorite verses, and it says, They, this early fledgling little church, a little bit bigger than you by this stage, 
He said they devoted themselves. The word devote in the Latin is devovere, I think. My Latin is high school, so forgive me. It means from towards. It means they walked away from something. Everything costs. You can't take just, you, you, you'd carry on doing what you did before and you sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on it. No, no, that, that doesn't work. There's something far more exquisite. And that is I turn my back on the things that were. I move from that lifestyle and I move towards something that's deeply compelling and enriching. And the four things they said creates an ecology is teaching. I understand we want a dialogue, and that's a good thing. But to open up the Scriptures and to allow the Scriptures to seep into us. Fellowship, which is transparent, honest, real brother and sisterhood. It's not high, brother, right shoulder, three pats on the back, and I've done my fellowship, and I've had my coffee, and I've had my donut. It is together, eating together, putting, in the Middle East they say that, that when a man or a woman put their knees and their shoes under your table, you will be friends. Fellowship to the Middle Eastern mind isn't what we often think. We have the fellowship hall in the old churches. It doesn't really mean much. It's just a cool kind of 70s thing you did. No, no, what it means is that we put our knees and feet under each other's tables, and that creates moments of sublime honesty. Transparency. Meryl's a therapist. Sorry to use you, my baby, again. Third time tonight. This is why I'm not paying you for the rights to your story. But you see, on a Thursday night, we have 15 to 20 people in our home for a midweek, and we always eat together. But the problem is Meryl gets home after an eight, sometimes up to a 12-hour day of seeing people back on back on back on back. And I know she gets home because I hear the garage door roll open, and she pulls in, and the garage door rolls closed. But Meryl doesn't appear immediately. Because I know the scene is her holding the steering wheel with her hands like this. Say, Lord, I am absolutely exhausted. I have given myself away to broken people all day. I do not have what it takes, but your grace is sufficient for me. Because where God is, there is life. She opens the garage door, and it's almost like someone wants to surprise her for a birthday because we're sitting around the dining room table. Everyone jumps up and comes across and hugs her and loves her. And by the time she goes to bed, 11, 11.30, we've tidied the kitchen. We've done the dishes. We've said everything, and, and she goes to bed. There's a smile on her face because where God is, there is life. The enemy says, oh, please don't go to the midweek. You're too tired. She could. Back to back to back to back problems, like problem problems, like people dying problems, like marriages that seem unsolvable problems. Meryl has every reason to say, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. I can't make it tonight. I'm fried. Where God is, there is life. The New Testament ecology is the Scriptures. It's fellowship putting our knees under each other's tables. There is worship, a singing of songs, and there is prayers. You know, we had this mini conference. Uh, where are you, Joma? At least, Josh. What time am I supposed to finish? I, I apologize, I didn't ask. Okay. Are you still with me? Because he can cope with more than you can. You know what I'm saying? And we just had this mini, mini conference. I don't know why they called it a mini conference, but it was. But, but I have to tell you, there was some absolutely exquisite worship. Now, I am biased because my daughter was one of the worship leaders. But, but, but it was more than that. Because there were moments when the presence and power of God came. My son-in-law is six foot four. He's a surfer. He's a brand designer, very creative guy. At one stage, he was standing there bawling his eyes. I forgive the boomerism. But he was just, why? Because where God is... There is life. So, so what will the enemy say to you? Oh, T, it's been a long week. Don't go worship Sunday. You, you don't need that. 
you're tired. He will sit and whisper because he knows if I can take you out of your ecology, I've got you beat. If, if I take you, as whether you're the tall tree or the shrub, if I take you out of that and just plonk you in the desert, he says with the whisper of the liar, you'll do fine. The reality is, you will not. I remember being in Israel in 1986. We came around, we were in a bus, we came around this massive big dune, and there was a kibbutz, and it was just, honestly, it was, it was desert like desert, desert. And there was this kibbutz with the most exquisite flowers and trees and shrubs. It was exquisite. We got off the boat and I looked at it. There was a young kibbutzin. And, and, and he was digging, he had these beautiful roses, and he was sitting with one, and there was a deep hole, so he could speak a little bit of English, and I know Hebrew. And, uh, and I said, what are you doing here? He said, well, what we found, for these roses to be totally beautiful is we have to wash the soil seven times. He said, if we put the, 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 the rose bush in this desert soil once, it will die, twice it will die, Three times it will die. It's so acidic. It's so saline. It cannot look after itself seven times. And as I walked past him, I looked at these most exquisite flowers with the deepest fragrance because they'd been washed seven times. Some of you need seven times washing. Once isn't enough. Two, twice isn't enough. Where God is, dear friends, that's where the life is. Does it make sense? All right, number two quickly, and these will just be quick. Where God plants you is where you will thrive. Where God plants you. Isn't it amazing? Men plant plantations, rows and rows of sameness. God says, no, I've got a much better idea. I will plant jungles in the desert. I will take little shrubs and I will take tall trees and they shouldn't grow together. But when I am done, it will be this gloriously rich, colorful extravagance of Eden recreated. Man wants to control, to prescribe, to create human order. Avenue upon avenue of sameness, homogenous, same culture, same language, same style, same dress code, same language, but God creates a jungle order. Why are you saying this, Chris? Because I'm saying to you, you may be the person who feels different. I'm 60. The average age of my church is 22. Do you understand when we play soccer, I am 35 years older than the next person. I still weave magic. It's just in slow motion. <laughs> because you see, it isn't this thing of, oh, well, I've got no friends here. Hmm. I don't think God asked that question. Well, see, I feel a little different because I'm an accountant and other people are, are designers and artists and, and, and poets and, 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 and novel writers also, that's exactly, ma'am, why you have to be here. Because God creates jungles in the desert, not a plantation. You may be thinking to yourself, there's no one like me in age, no one like me in mindset, worldview, perspective, no one like me in dress code, no one like me at any level. And God says, yep, 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 I am planting you exactly where I want you. There's a book out called The Relational Soul by Richard Plass and James Cofield. Have you read it, Josh? And in it he makes, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but, but, but I'll just I'll identify two things he says. They say in this book, in the light of this. And here it is. Firstly, when God creates a jungle in the desert, we must understand that he puts us in a very particular community. I know we think we should choose our church. Well, I think I'll go to Van City because 5 o'clock suits me. Ah, uh, wrong answer. Well, I think I'm going to go to Van City because there's got a good kids' ministry. Ah, uh, wrong answer. Well, I think I'm going to because they're understated, because they do things quietly. They don't have some raving leader who walks up and down swinging a microphone. It's just, hi, I'm Josh. <laughs> See? 
We, we, we think we are choosing when it's in fact God who is selecting. Now that's a beautiful and necessary lens for us to understand. I will thrive when I am here, you say. Will Josh irritate you 100%? Of course he will. Meryl and I have been married 38 years. I irritate her on a daily basis. We're still married. Sometimes just. <laughs> Probably three times or something in our lives we could have got divorced. Heck yeah. But, but, but I was so persuaded God knit us together that that awkwardness, eye to belly button, when she just couldn't see things my way, the right way. It's, it's, you hear what I'm saying, folks? If this of most precious love affairs we hold together, we can cope with the crusty crankiness that is called local community and local church. And I'm, I'm, I'm so curious by the ease with which people leave churches and float around and never seem to be able to find a spiritual home again. Why? Because they were never meant to transplant. They were never meant to go somewhere else to a cooler, sexier, bigger church with more programs and activities for the kids. God plants us, a particular group. Meryl and I were in Kirstenbosch Gardens, which is in Cape Town, up the, the mountain. And Meryl said to me, we had a gap in preaching, and, and she said to me, can we just go to Kirstenbosch quickly? I said, sure. We dashed there. Sun was setting, beautiful African sun setting over the Cape Plains. The, the smog and dust created this color, rich, exquisite color. And um, the, 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 the gardens were beautiful over here and all messed up over there. And I'm kind of chatting away, I'm curious, I'm looking, and, and, and I look at my, my wife, and here she's weeping. Born in Central Africa, moved to South Africa, Africa's deep in her. And I realize, oh, crud, back in a way, back in a way. But I'm looking, I'm saying, Lord, what's happening here? Those beds are beautiful. Those beds are all mulched up. And he said, I'm re-landscaping my church. I'm moving people around. See, folks, the only time we leave a church, the only two times, one is when God clearly moves us. Not when we're irritated, exasperated. When God clearly moves us. And number two, in a box. Like coffin box. Only two times. If we leave any other time, it's called rebellion. We've been saved 42 years. I think we've been in three churches. God moved what God says. Because He's planted us specifically and particularly. Because church is mysterious and messy. It is. I am so astounded. You know, I walked my two daughters down the aisle. I, I'm going to try and land it. I don't know how, because I've got way too much to say, but I'm going to try and land it. My eldest daughter was 18 when she got married. It could have been 17, but her future husband said, let's get married when she was 18. So that was a relief. <laughs> and I remember getting out the car and walking with her. And it was an outdoor wedding, and the, 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 the pathway had a little bit of a kink to it. And as we were walking towards the people sitting there, music playing, as we got to the little kink to turn right, she said, Dad, she said, can we do one more thing, one last thing together? I said, definitely, babe. She said, can we dance together one last time? It was Josh Groban, this was 15 years ago, love. You lift me up. And the two of us paused. Eternity stood still. Time stood still as my gorgeous 18-year-old and I danced one more time before I gave her away to her husband. In that fleeting moment, there was no way I was thinking of the sleepless nights I had with her. Uh, we, we, we had, Meryl and I. I. I didn't think of the times she lied. I didn't think of the times she was just a pain in the butt. I didn't think of those times because it was an exquisite moment. And ladies and gentlemen, there are times when I think we think God is preoccupied by our moments of brokenness rather than the glorious narrative of His righteous dealings with us. 
See, He plants us in a community so that we become agents of righteousness, so that we reflect His beauty in glorious ways. It says here that we will reveal His glory. When the world looks at us, they see the beauty as I did of my daughter that often. It doesn't matter what they say. We were recording our first worship album many, many years ago. And we were doing the women's, the female vocals. And the guy who was doing the, the engineering stopped in the middle of it and he said, I've got to get out, I've got to get out. And he ran outside puffing away in a cigarette. And um, uh, Malcolm, who was producing the album, went, he said, are you okay? I couldn't remember his name. He said, you okay? He said, you know, my wife, and this is true, my wife is the choreographer for topless dancing at the local casino. I am around beautiful naked women all the time, but I've never been in a room of such righteousness before I could not cope. The enemy wants to remind us of the stains of our sinfulness and the moments of our disobedience, but God wants to hover us just for a moment and remind us that you are a planting of the Lord, Van City. You are here to, dis to display His splendor for the people to see the wonder of kind, forgiving, redeeming God. Of the wonderful way in which God is at work in us to display His splendor. Every day we are preoccupied by our limitations, weakness, brokenness. But God rides roughshod over those things and fills in the cracks with the kindness of His righteousness. God makes a jungle in the desert where one should not exist. He takes a little oasis of obedience, a husband and a wife with kids, who says, we will go where there is a little bit of water. And God says, I will create a jungle around that little oasis because where God is, there is life. And for all of you, in the applause of the moment, I say, well done and thank you. I say, stay in this ecology. Stay here where God is doing a work. Don't get impatient. Don't be thrown by your doubts. You will have them. Don't be thrown by broken relationships. You will have them. Don't be thrown by the awkwardness of rhythms of busyness, and you will have them. Remain connected into this jungle and see what God can do from this little oasis to life. Let me pray for you, please. Thanks for listening to Van City. There are more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.